This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, during July and August 2006. Love Conquers All by Robert C. Benchley. Chapter 41 the new timetable the new timetable of the new york central railroad new york central railroad harlem division form 113 corrected to march 28 1922 is an attractive folder done in black and white for the suburban trade it slips neatly into the pocket where it easily becomes lost among letters and bills appearing again only when you have procured another so much for its physical features of the text matter, it is difficult to write without passion. No more disheartening work has been put on the market this season. In an attempt to evade the daylight savings law, the New York Central has kept its clocks at what is called Eastern Standard Time, meaning that it is standard on East 42nd Street between Vanderbilt and Lexington Avenues. Practically everywhere else in New York, the clocks are an hour ahead. It is this Eastern Standard Time that gives the timetable its distinctive flavor. Each train has been demoted one hour, and then, for fear that it would be too easy to understand this, an extra three or four minutes have been thrown in or taken out, just so that no mistake can help being made. In order to read the new timetable understandingly, the following procedure is now necessary. Take a room in some quiet family hotel where the noise from the street is reduced to minimum. Place the timetable on the writing desk and sit in front of it, holding a pencil in the right hand and a watch, Eastern Christian time, in the left. Then decide on the time you think you would like to reach home. Let us say that you usually have dinner at 7. You would if you could do just what you wanted, reach Valhalla at 6.30. Very well. It takes about an hour from the Grand Central Terminal to Valhalla. How about a train leaving around 5.30? Look at the timetable for a train which leaves about 2.45 Eastern Standard Time. Write down 2.45 on a piece of paper. Add 150. Subtract the number of stations that Valhalla is above White Plains. Sharpen your pencil and bind up your cut finger and subtract the number you first thought of, and the result will show the number of presidents of the United States who have been assassinated while in office. Then go over to the Grand Central Terminal and ask one of the information clerks what you want to know. They will be glad to see you, for during the last three days they have been actually hungering for the sight of a human face. Sometimes it has seemed to them that the silence and loneliness there behind the information counter would drive them mad. If someone, anyone, would only come and speak to them. That is why one of them is over in the corner chewing up timetables into small balls and playing marbles with them. He has gone mad from loneliness. The other clerk, the one who is looking at the tip of his nose and mumbling Lincoln's Gettysburg address, 
has only a few more minutes before he too succumbs. And that low rumbling sound, what is it? It comes from the crowd of commuters standing in front of the gate of what used to be the 556. Let us draw near and hear what they are discussing. Why, it is the new timetable of all things. Listen, Ed, this is how it goes. This train that goes at 425, according to this timetable, is really the old 520, see? What you do is add an hour. Oh, what kind of talk is that? Add an hour to your grandmother. You subtract an hour from the time as given here. This is Eastern Standard Time. See, it says right here, the time shown in this folder is Eastern Standard Time. One hour slower than Daylight Savings Time. See? One hour slower. You subtract. Eh, you guys are both way off. I just asked one of the trainmen. The 556 is gone. It went at 420. The next train that we get is the 620, which goes at 519. Look, see here. It says 519 on the timetable, but that means that by your watch it is 619. Well, by my watch it is not 619. My watch I set by the clock in the station this morning when I came in. Well, the clock in the station is wrong. That is, the clock in the station is an hour ahead of all the other clocks. An hour ahead? An hour behind, you mean? No, a clock in the station is an hour ahead. I know what I'm talking about. Now listen, Joe. Didn't you see in the paper Monday morning? Yes, I saw in the paper Monday morning, and it said that, Look, Gus, by my watch. Look, Gus, listen, listen, Gus, by my watch. Ah, uh, you and your watch. What's that got to do with it? Now look here. On this timetable, it says, Listen, Eddie. Whatever else its publishers may say about it, the new New York Central timetable bids fair to be the most talked-of publication of the season. Chapter 42 Mr. Box Americanization If ever you should feel important enough to write an autobiography to give to the world, and dislike to say all the nice things about yourself that you feel really ought to be said, just write it in the third person. Edward Bach has done this in The Americanization of Edward Bach, and the effect is quite touching in its modesty. In An Explanation at the Beginning of the Book, Mr. Bach disclaims any credit for the winning ways and remarkable success of his hero, Edward Bach. Edward Bach, the little Dutch boy who landed in America in 1870 and later became the editor of the greatest women's advertising medium in the country, is an entirely different person from the Edward Bach who is telling the story. You understand this to begin with, otherwise you may misjudge the author. I have again and again found myself, writes Mr. Bach, watching with intense amusement and interest the Edward Bach of this book at work. His tastes, his outlook, his manner of looking at things were totally at variance with my own. He has had, and has been, a personality apart from my private self. The only connection between Edward Bach the editor and Edward Bach the autobiographer seems to be that 
Editor Bach allows Author Bach to have a checking account in his bank under their common name. Thus, completely detached from his hero, Mr. Bach proceeds and is able to narrate on page three, in the manner of Horatio Alger, how young Edward, taunted by his Brooklyn schoolmates, gave a sound thrashing to the ringleader, after which he found himself looking into the eyes of a crowd of very respectful boys and giggling girls, who readily made a passageway for his brother and himself when they indicated a desire to leave the schoolyard and go home. He can also, without seeming in the least conceited, tell how, through his clear-sighted firmness in refusing to write in the Spencerian manner prescribed in school, he succeeded in bringing the principal and the whole board of education to their senses, resulting in a complete reversal of the public school policy in the matter of handwriting instruction. The Horatio Alger note is dominant throughout the story of young Edward's boyhood. His cheerfulness and business sagacity so impressed everyone with whom he came in contact that he was soon outdistancing all the other boys in the process of self-advancement and no one is more smilingly tolerant of the irresistible progress of young Edward Bach in making friends and money than Edward Bach, the impersonal author of the book. He just loves to see the young boy get ahead. It will perhaps aid in getting an idea of the personality and confident presence of the boy Bach to state that he was a feverish collector of autographs. Whenever any famous personage came to town, the young man would find out at what hotel he was staying, and would proceed to hound him until he had got him to write his name, with some appropriate sentiment, in a little book. In advertising the present volume, the publishers gave a list of names of historical characters who feature in Mr. Bach's reminiscences. Generals Grant and Garfield, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Longfellow, Emerson, and dozens of others. And so they do figure in the book, but as victims of the young Dutch boy's passion for autographs. Still, perhaps they did not mind, for the author gives us to understand that they were all so charmed with the prepossessing manner and intelligent bearing of the young autographed hound that they not only were continually asking him to dinner, he usually timed his visit so as to catch them just as they were entering the dining-room, but insisted on giving him letters of introduction to their friends. Only Mrs. Abraham Lincoln and Ralph Waldo Emerson neglected to register extreme pleasure at being approached by the smiling lad. Both Mrs. Lincoln and Emerson were failing in their minds at the time, however, which satisfactorily explains their coolness, at least for the author. In Mrs. Lincoln's case, an attempt was made to interest her in an autographed photograph of General Grant, but Edward saw that the widow of the great Lincoln did not mentally respond to his pleasure in his possession. Could it have been possible that the widow of the great Lincoln was a trifle bored? The account of the intrusion on Emerson in Concord borders on the sacrilegious. Here was the venerable philosopher, five months before his death, when his great mind had already gone on before him, 
being visited by a strange lad with a passion for autographs, who sat and watched for those lucid moments when the sun would break through the clouded brain, making it possible for Emerson to hold the pen and form the letters of his name. Then young Edward was off, with another trophy in his belt and another stride made in his progress toward Americanization. Lovers of Emerson could wish that the impersonal editor of these memoirs had omitted the account of this victory. Americanization seems, from the present document, to consist of, first, making as many influential friends as possible who may be able to help you at some future time, second, making as much money as possible, Young Edward used his position as stenographer to Jay Gould to glean tips on the market, thereby cleaning up for himself and his Sunday school teacher at Plymouth Church. And third, keeping your eye open for the main chance. In conclusion, nothing more fitting could be quoted than the touching caption under the picture of the author's grandmother, who counseled each of her children to make the world a better and more beautiful place to live in, a counsel which is now being carried on by her grandchildren, one of whom is Edward Bach. Could detachment of author and hero be more complete? Chapter 43 Zane Gray's Movie the hum of the moving picture machine is the predominating note in The Mysterious Rider, Zane Gray's latest contribution to the literature of unrealism. All that is necessary for a complete illusion is the insertion of three or four news photographs at the end, showing how they catch salmon in the Columbia River, the allegorical floats in the Los Angeles Carnival of Roses, and the ice-covered fire ruins in the business section of Worcester, Mass. In order that the change from book to film may be made as quickly as possible, the author has written his story in the language of the moving picture subtitle. All that the continuity writer in the studio will have to do will be to take every third sentence from the book and make a subtitle from it. We might save him the trouble and do it here together with some suggestions for incidental decorations. Remember, nothing will be quoted below which is not in the exact wording of Zane Gray's text. We first see Columbine Bellounds, adopted daughter of old Bellounds, the rancher of Colorado. She is riding along the trail overlooking the valley. Today, girlish ordeals and griefs seemed back in the past. She was a woman at nineteen, and face to face with the first great problem in her life. Suggestion for title decoration? A pair of reluctant feet standing at the junction of a brook and a river. She stops to pick some columbines and soliloquizes. The author says, She spoke aloud as if the sound of her voice might convince her. But it is not clear from the text just what she expected to be convinced of. Here is her argument to herself. Columbine, so they named me. 
those miners who found me, a baby, lost in the woods, asleep among the columbines. Decorative nasturtiums. Having convinced herself in these reassuring words, as she stands alone on the ridge in God's great outdoors, she explains that she has promised to marry Jack Bellounds, the worthless son of her foster father, although anyone can tell that she is in love with Wilson Moore, a cowpuncher on the ranch. You will understand what a sacrifice this was to be when the author says that the lower part of Jack Bellown's face was weak. Or to the ranch comes Hellbent Wade, the mysterious man of the plains. He applies for a job, and not only that, but he gets it, which gives him a chance to let us know that eighteen years ago he had driven the woman he loved away from him, out into the world with her baby girl. Jealous fool! Too late had he discovered his fatal blunder. That was Bent Wade's secret. Fancy sketch of a secret. And as we already know that Columbine is almost nineteen, I think she told herself this fact aloud once when she was out riding alone just to convince herself, the shock is not so great as it might have been to hear Wade murmur aloud, doubtless to convince himself, too. Baby would have been, let's see, most nineteen years old now, if she'd lived. Any bets on who Columbine really is? <laughs> Let us digress from the scenario a minute to cite a scintillating passage one of many in the book. Wade is speaking. You can never tell what a dog is until you know him. Dogs are like men. Some of them look good, but they're really bad. And that works the other way around. Oscar Wilde stuff, that is. <laughs> How often have you felt the truth of what Mr. Gray says here? and yet have never been able to put it into words. It is this ability to put thoughts into words that makes him one of our most popular authors today. But enough of this. Hellbent Wade determines that his little girl shall not know him as her father, and furthermore, that she shall not marry Jack Bellounds. So he goes to the cabin of Wilsmore and tells him that Columbine is unhappy at the thought of her approaching, you guessed it, nuptials. Pard, she loves me. Still? Well, hers is the kind that grows stronger with time. I know. A heart with an hourglass intertwined. Let it be said right here, however, that Jack Bellounds, rough and villainous as he is, is the kind of cowpuncher who says to his father, I still love you, Dad, despite the cruel thing you did to me. No cowpuncher who says despite can be entirely bad. Neither can he be a cowpuncher. It is later, after a thrilling series of physical encounters, that Columbine tells Jack Bellounds in so many words that she loves Wilsmore. 
Then Wade saw the glory of her, saw her mother again in that proud, fierce uplift of face that flamed red and then blazed white, saw hate and passion and love in all their primal nakedness. Love him? Love Wilson Moore? Yes, you fool, I love him. Yes, yes, yes. Decorative heart in which a little door slowly opens, showing the face of Columbine. But time is short, and there is a salmon comedy to follow immediately after this. So all that we can divulge is that Jack has Wils Moore wrongly accused of cattle rustling, bringing down on his own head the following chatty bit from his affianced bride. So that's your revenge? But you're to reckon with me, Jack Bellounds. You villain! You devil! You! It would be unfair to the millions of readers who will struggle for possession of these circulating library copies of The Mysterious Rider to tell just what happens after this. But need we hesitate to divulge that the final subtitle will be I have faith and hope and love, for I am his daughter. A faint cool breeze strayed through the aspens, rustling the leaves whisperingly, and the slender columbines, gleaming pale in the twilight, lifted their sweet faces. Decorative Bull Chapter 44 Suppressing Jurgen. Of course, it was silly to suppress Jurgen. That goes without saying. But it seems equally silly, because of its being suppressed, to hail it as high art. It is simply Mr. James Branch Cabell's quaint way of telling a raw story, and it isn't particularly his own way either. Personally, I like the modern method much better. Jurgen is a frank imitation of the old-time pornographers, and although it is a very good imitation, it need not rank Mr. Cabell any higher than the maker of a plaster-of-Paris copy of some Boeotian sculptural oddity. The author, in defense of his fortunate book, lifts his eyebrows and says, Honissoir. He claims, and quite rightly, that everything he has written has at least one decent meaning, and that anyone who reads anything indecent into it automatically convicts himself of being in a pathological condition. The question is, if Mr. Cabell had been convinced beforehand that nowhere in all this broad land would there be anyone who would read another meaning into his lily-white words, would he ever have bothered to write the book at all? Mr. Cabell is admittedly a genealogist. He is an earnest student of the literature of past centuries. He has become so steeped in the phrases and literary mannerisms of the Middle and Upper Middle Ages that, even in his book of modern essays, Beyond Life, he is constantly emitting strange words which were last used by the correspondents who covered the Crusades. No man has to be as artificially obsolete as Mr. Cabell is. He likes to be. 
In Jurgen he has simply let himself go. There is no pretense of writing like a modern. There is no pretense of writing in the style of even James Branch Cabell. It is frankly in the manner of those ancient authors whose works are sold surreptitiously to college students by gentlemen who whisper their selling talk behind a line of red sample bindings. And it is not in the manner of Rabelais, although Rabelais' name has been frequently used in describing Jurgen. Rabelais seldom hid his thought behind two meanings. There was only one meaning, and you could take it or leave it. And Rabelais would never have said only soit by way of defense. The general effect is one of Fielding or Stern telling the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, with their own embellishments, to the boys at the club. If all that is necessary to produce a work of art is to take a drummer's story and tell it in dusty English, we might try our luck with the modern smoking-car yarn about the traveling man who came to the country hotel late at night, and see how far we can get with it in the manner of James Branch Cabell imitating Fielding, imitating someone else. It is a tale which they narrate in Nouveau Rochelle, saying, In the old days there came one night a travelling man to an inn, and the night was late, and he was sore beset, what with ragtag and bobtail. Eftsoons he made known his wants to the churl behind the desk, who was named Gogirvan, and thus he spake. Any rooms? Indeed, no, sir, was Gogirvan's gloss. Now, but this is a deplorable thing, God wot, says the travelling man. Fie, brother, but you think awry. Come, don smart your thinking cap, and answer me again. And you have forgot my query. It was, any rooms, beau? Whereat the churl behind the desk gat him down from his stool, and close it one eye in a wink. There is one room, he says, and places his forefinger along the side of his nose, in the manner of a man who places his forefinger along the side of his nose. But at this point I am stopped short by the warning passage through the room of a cold, damp current of air as from the grave, and I know that it is one of Mr. Sumner's vice-deputies flitting by on his rounds in defense of the public morals, so I can go no further, for public morals must be defended even at the cost of public morality, a statement which means nothing, but which sounds rather well, I think. I shall try to work it in again some time. But perhaps enough has been said to show that it is perfectly easy to write something that will sound classic if you can only remember enough old words. When Mr. Cabell has learned the language, he ought to write a good book in modern English. There are lots of people who read it, and they speak very highly of it as a means of expression. But there are certain things that you cannot express in it without sounding crass, which would be a disadvantage in telling a story like Jurgen. Chapter 45 Anti-Ibanez 
While on the subject of books which we read because we think we ought to, and while Vicente Blasco Ibanez is on the ocean and can't hear what is being said, let's form a secret society. I will be one of any three to meet behind a barn and admit that I would not give a good gosh darn if a fortune-teller were to tell me tomorrow that I should never, never have a chance to read another book by the great Spanish novelist. Any of the American reading public who desire to join this secret society may do so without fear of publicity, as the names will not be given out. The only means of distinguishing a fellow member will be a tiny gold emblem to be worn in the lapel, representing the figure, couchant, of Spain's most touted animal. The motto will be Nimmermehr, which is a German translation of the Spanish phrase, not even once again. Simply because I myself am not impressed by a book, I have no authority to brand anyone who does not like it as a poseur and say that he is only making believe that he likes it. And there must be a great many highly literary people who really and sincerely do think that Signor Blasco's books are the finest novels of the epoch. It would therefore be presumptuous of me to say that Spain is now, for the first time since before 1898, in a position to kid the United States, and vicariously, through watching her famous son count his royalties and gate receipts, to feel avenged for the loss of her islands. If America has found something superfine in Ibanez that his countrymen have missed, then America is, of course, to be congratulated and not kidded. But probably no one was more surprised than Blasco when he suddenly found himself a lion in our literary arena instead of in his accustomed role of bull in his home ring. And those who know say that you could have knocked his compatriots over with a feather when the news came that old man Ibanez's son had made good in the United States to the extent of something like five hundred million pesetas. For, like the prophet whom someone was telling about, Ibanez was not known at home as a particularly hot tamale. But then he never had such a persistent publisher in Spain, and book advertising is not the art there that it is in America. When the final accounting of the great success of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse in this country is taken, honorable mention must be made of the man at the E. P. Dutton and Company store who had charge of the advertising. The great Spanish novelist was in the French propaganda service during the war. It was his job to make Germany unpopular in Spanish. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse is obviously propaganda, and not particularly subtle propaganda either. Certain chapters might have to come direct from our own Creel Committee, and one may still be true to the Allied cause, and yet maintain that propaganda and literature do not mix with any degree of illusion. There is no question, of course, that those chapters in the book which are descriptive of the advance and subsequent retreat of the German troops under the eye of Don Marcello are masterpieces of descriptive reporting. 
but Philip Gibbs has given us a whole book of masterpieces of descriptive reporting which do not bear the stamp of approval of the official propaganda bureau. And furthermore, Philip Gibbs does not wear a sport shirt open at the neck. At least, he never had his picture taken that way. As for the rest of the books that were dragged out from the Spanish for storehouse when the four horsemen romped in winners, I can speak only as I would speak of the world's most famous battles, or heroines in Shakespeare. I have looked them over. I gave Mare Nostrum a great deal of my very valuable time, because the advertisements spoke so highly of it. Woman Triumphant took less time, because I decided to stop earlier in the book. Blood and Sand I passed up having once seen a Madrid bullfight for myself, which may account for this nasty attitude I have toward any Spanish product. I am told, however, that this is the best of them all. It is remarkable that for a writer who seems to have left such an indelible imprint in the minds of the American people, whose works have been ranked with the greatest of all time, and who received more publicity during one day of his visit here than Charles Dickens received during his whole sojourn in America, Signor Blasco and his works form a remarkably small part of the spontaneous literary conversation of the day. The characters which he has created have not taken any appreciable hold in the public imagination. Their names are never used as examples of anything. Who were some of his chief characters, by the way? What did they say that was worth remembering? What did they do that characters have not been doing for many generations? Did you ever hear anyone say, He talks like a character in Ibanez? Or, This might have happened in one of Ibanez's books. Of course, it is possible for a man to write a great book from which no one would quote. That is probably happening all the time, but it is because no one has read it. Here we have an author whose vogue in this country, according to statistics, is equal to that of any writer of novels in the world. And as soon as his publicity department stops functioning... I should like to lay a little bet that he will not be heard of again. This ends Section 9 of Love Conquers All by Robert C. Benchley, read by Ted DeLorme for LibriVox. This book will continue on future files.